Welcome to the Powers Report podcast. I'm your host, Janice Powers. The show brings you candid, unique, and data-driven perspectives on the healthcare industry. I believe that any solution that is going to positively impact the American healthcare system has to satisfy two major criteria, financial viability and behavioral incentive alignment. In other words, access to high quality care can only be achieved if we can afford it and if we behave in ways that optimize our health. Please subscribe to our show on your preferred podcasting platform and connect with us on social media. Again, this is Janice Powers and welcome to the Powers Report podcast. Welcome everyone to the show. Um, we are going to do something different this time. Ordinarily on the past uh, shows that we've had, it's been all Janice all the time addressing one issue on healthcare. But it's time for me to bring in some experts and individuals who have different insights to the industry to elevate this conversation and start to pick holes in some of these ideas that I have been proposing for almost two years now. So today, I would like to welcome uh, Dr. Eric Weaver on the show um, and go through his background. And basically, the format of the show is going to be, I'm going to explain what longitudinal healthcare's goals are. And if you've been a listener for a long time, you know they've sort of been migrating towards a, a path of transforming the health insurance industry. Uh, and then tap into Eric's unique experience and sort of shoot holes in what we're doing and have a conversation back and forth about how we can eliminate health insurance and make the American healthcare ecosystem better. So again, I'd like to welcome Dr. Eric Weaver to the show. Uh, Eric is the executive director of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative, which is a mouthful, but ACLC is a nonprofit peer learning member organization focused on accelerating the transition to value-based care. The co-founders of ACLC are former Secretary of Health and Human Services, Governor Mike Levitt, and former Administrator for CMS, Dr. Mark McClellan. Prior to Eric's tenure at ACLC, Eric was a VP at InnoVista Health Solutions, and prior to that, he was the President and CEO of Integrated ACO in Austin, Texas. Uh, the reason that Eric is on the show is um, because he has an amazing, deep, experience level with Medicare and sort of traditional payment models in the American healthcare system. Uh, Eric has been involved in longitudinal healthcare for over a year now, and I like to talk to Eric because I'm proposing something completely out there, which is trying to disintegrate the insurance model. That's a great vision to have, but I go to Eric when I need a reality check because as everybody knows, the insurance industry in America is an enormous lobby and there are so many people who have embedded uh, reasons to not change the system. And Eric sort of sits on both sides of the fence. He recognizes that change is really, really needed. And that's one of the great things about ACLC. But he also knows that you know a lot of wonderful care is delivered given through the current model. So I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Welcome to the show, Eric. Hey, Janice. It's great to be here. I'm a big fan. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Well, I think the first thing I'd like to do um, is have you explain to our listeners what an accountable care organization is um, and maybe give a little bit of insights into value-based care, but we'll talk about that in a bit. But 
Um, there are a lot of acronyms in healthcare and an ACO is relatively new, but if you could tell us sort of what the technical term is, like the payment model, and then, you know, when people talk about ACOs a little more colloquially um, in conversation generally, um, if you could give us some roundabouts, it would help to frame the conversation. Sure, happy to do that, Janice. Uh, you know, and you mentioned uh, the name of my uh, nonprofit organization, the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative, and it is a mouthful. And unfortunately, I think accountable care is uh, one of those terms that's kind of going by the wayside in the in industry. I mean, we're actually launching a, a, a bigger, you know, company and institute. And really what it's about, Janice, is health value. Uh, accountable care um, in, in, the, in the way it's used now, it really describes an ACO or an accountable care organization. You know, that was a term that Elliot Fisher coined back in 2006 uh, when he was uh, working with the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission. And then in 2010, when the ACA uh, was passed, that's what eventually promulgated uh, the ACO payment model and, uh, you know, and then started the, the work uh, within Medicare. Um, but it's, you know, but, you know, just strictly by the technical definition, ACOs are just a payment model. Um, and I think it's important for your listeners to understand that, you know, uh, that it's, it's part of value-based care and part of the movement, but, and they're, they are linked, but ACOs don't epitomize the health value because there's so much more that goes into it. Um, but, you know, I think colloquially, um, ACOs are kind of, it has become a, a catch-all term, even though accountable care hasn't really caught on, but the, the term ACO as a as a, uh, a network of physicians and hospitals that come together and collectively agree to become financially uh, responsible for quality outcomes for a defined population and pivoting from fee-for-service and managing high-risk patients and mitigating chronic disease through prevention, all of that persists and is known uh, with as a as part of what the ACO model really is and you know the accountable care models have been adopted not only by Medicare but but by state Medicaid plans the private pay market with commercial insurers you know it's becoming like the like how we how we use the term coke or xerox i mean it's it's become like oh you're in an ACO that must mean you're doing value based care um, and that's that. And that's kind of how I think about it. But but really, I think it is important to to define health value for what it is. I'm sure we'll get into that later today. And then think about how we can think outside of the confines of just strict definitions of this is how the payment model is designed. And and then really, when, when you look at it that way, it's all about playing a game. You know how how can you bend the cost curve? You know, hit your quality marks. You know, and then earn a shared savings bonus. But what I love about the work that you're doing with Longitudinal Janus, it's not just about playing the game, but it's about transforming lives through consumer empowerment. And that's really where we need to go in this value-based care movement. All right, that is really elucidating and helps a lot. Um, I think we are so aligned in the idea that we have to use preventive care, we have to have better outcomes. The difference is that you know, in an ACO and in a quote unquote payment model, uh, the patients are sort of grouped together and someone else has sort of accountability for them. Would that be correct? That's uh, absolutely correct. And it's really about um, assigning 
uh, to providers or health systems, a population, and then uh, holding them accountable for the outcomes of that population. In the Medicare world, um, it, it, it's even, you know, you, you take it a step further and yes, you're responsible for the population, but it's really that, you know, the 5% that drives 50% of the cost being laser focused in a myopic way on how do you uh, move the needle and uh, really look at interventions that are um, based on individualized care plans and addresses kind of global, you know, determinants that, uh, that affect the health and well-being of the patient outside of the brick and mortar of the clinic or the, or the hospital. And that's what really excites me and why Janice, I got into value-based care. Um, but yeah, I think in, in the definition that you described, being responsible for that population, um, that's a big part of it. And then I, I think the other, the other thing that I think about when, when it comes to ACOs is, you know, how it's really about collaboration. And that's why we, we call our, our learning collaborative, uh, the ACLC learning collaborative collaboration. It really does take a village to make this work. And I think, in uh, fee for, in the fee for service world, that's that's lost. I mean, it the the broken system as we've designed it over the last you know five decades of fee for service. It's really fragmented, uncoordinated, complex. Uh, there isn't information sharing, and that's created a monstrosity to which it it's a, it's impossible for a patient to navigate. And I think ACOs are an incremental way to at least resolve and ameliorate. Um, you know, some of those uh, systemic dysfunctions to create better outcomes. It doesn't solve the bigger problem. And I know we'll get into that in terms of how you, how you really disrupt and disintegrate uh, healthcare and, and achieve your mission, Janice, of eliminating health insurance. There's a lot there to unpack, but, but I think ACOs are a small step in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, the more you talk, it's, uh, it seems to me that the ACO model is really on the delivery side and less the payment side. So let me frame this up with what we're trying to do, uh, just to remind everybody, um, and because it has sort of morphed because we are a company and we've got to react to the market and to what consumers want. Longitudinal has always been about the obsolescence of health insurance with this idea that we can predict health outcomes. And in doing that, we've eliminated this need to have you know, the traditional model of a, a financial cover for the unknown because we've predicted the unknown. Um, a lot of people love that, and that's you know, sort of the sexy stuff that investors like. To me, for the market we're in, because we're not in the Medicare market, we're in the under 65 market, a lot of things either don't happen till later or are fairly predictable. So we're not trying to get in the space where we're coming up with 84.7% accuracy that someone's gonna have carpal tunnel syndrome in the next six months. That's not, in the world we live, um, because it, it's just, it's like throwing a gorilla at, you know, carpal tunnel surgeries, like $2,500. I mean, it's just not worth it to spend the time to make that prediction because the, the financial outflow isn't um, catastrophic. So what we are in the business of doing instead is giving some pretty good estimates on what people are gonna get and then putting the pricing on it. Um, and that requires us to outline what the clinical pathways are going to be. And a lot of that's already articulated right now, although it will vary by patient because some patients are, you know, are more keen on taking medications or having surgery. Other people would rather try alternatives before going to surgery. So it really depends on you and having a relationship with a provider you like. But then we have to put 
prices on this stuff. And this is, I think, the hardest part actually in our mission because I don't want to have a closed network. I want people to go wherever they want to go and pick the provider they like, which is one of the reasons I am really, I have trouble with a lot of these models that use narrow networks and closed networks because it, it eliminates sort of consumer freedom on the healthcare that they want to get. The pricing part is so hard because pricing is difficult. Well, first of all, there's just all the secrecy around it. The way that the system shows prices or does pricing is so detailed that an average person has no idea what these prices mean. And then the prices vary based on who's paying. So what we're trying to focus on is the commoditized, inexpensive, high volume stuff like lab work, uh, imaging, primary care visits, specialty visits, even some of the low, really anything under $10,000 and try and get those prices out to consumers. Because in my mind, those should be paid direct to provider and the stuff, and ironically, that's all sort of covered right now. And people have no, you know, they're, they're, they think they're getting this stuff for free, but they don't realize how cheap it is. And to me, all that should be peeled out and people should be paying for that direct and they should just be paying insurance for the things that are super expensive uh, and either a shared model and then have catastrophic care for the unknown. So that's, that's where we are at this point. I think an interesting question for you would be if I, you know, let's assume that I have structured this concept that we have and we are figuring out a way for an employer to give like me, the employee, the money uh, for insurance, what would traditionally go to a, you know, an employer sponsored insurance plan. They're gonna give the money to the employees. I'm gonna go out and spend it um, on my healthcare and I'd engage with somebody like Longitudinal to manage the money, get me catastrophic care and tell me what I'm gonna need. How would some, like what would be the benefits then of working with an ACO? Because I think it would be like, how would I even know what that is? Because I feel like given all the coordination that ACOs do, it would be an ideal situation for a longitudinal customer. Well, Janice, you mentioned two important things um, in terms of value-based care as I think about it, and it's the relationships and the pricing. And I think ACOs really do have a, a purpose to play in coordinating functions across a very complex and convoluted healthcare system. Now, if we're able to re-engineer that system and that might mitigate the need for having coordination, but I think what I, what I really like about the ACO model, um, first and foremost, is that it creates empowerment at the provider level where you can deconstruct the model of the team. You don't have a, an autocratic, you know, take it or leave it, prescriptive, um, physician-led program, it's really, it does create the, the locus of control back into the patients where you do deconstruct the, the model of that team where you're living, delivering care in a more interdependent, interconnected way. You disperse power where, you know, uh, you have, you know, everyone stepping up to their highest level of licensure and scope, you know, whether it be social workers, care coordinators, therapists, nurses, uh, physicians, um, really 
thinking about in a data-driven way, you know, how can I improve outcomes? But the second thing you, that you mentioned is the pricing. And I think ACOs um, really align those incentives towards interdisciplinary uh, collaboration and delivering care through those uh, re-engineering of the financial incentives. I love where you're going in terms of uh, creating a mechanism to which you can put financial alignment in the in the patient's hands. Now, the providers have that in an ACO, but still the a lot of the ACOs, I mean, they're, they're still predominantly, you know, uh, thriving in a fee-for-service world and they're dipping their toe in the water and they have a, a segment of patients. And that's really where the challenge is, I think, in the in terms of creating uh, the paradigm shift. I mean, there's there's different tipping points. Like there's a clinical tipping point where you start to you know have as a provider clinical care pathways. You're you're applying that in your organization, and then maybe when you get to around fifty uh, percent of your business being you know based on capitation or uh, you know downside risk exposure, you hit a, like a cultural tipping point where you self-identify as operating in a value-based care environment and you start making strategic investments. And then really that financial tipping point happens when about seventy percent of your organization is at risk and the economic model has to really be based entirely on managing total cost of care for a population. What, what what's missing in the ACO model is that it, you, you don't have tipping points within the patient or the consumer segment. You just don't. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, patients are incentivized to uh, maybe to, to uh, seek more primary care. They have extra resources, um, but they're navigating a broken system. And an ACO is almost like you're overlaying uh, a value-based payment model on top of a broken system. So what I love about what you're thinking about and doing is really putting financial incentives back into the into into the patient's reach, and then really converging on the the work that the ACOs have already done. I mean, I I think what what, what you're saying makes absolute sense. I mean, why can't we have some type of catastrophic um, health insurance option? Um, and it really what we don't have now is health insurance. We have health coverage, and it just pays for a bunch of stuff that most people don't need, and it's really expensive. And we all know the story. But if you if you make it to where you know you can afford uh, to to pay out of pocket for what you know all those different things that you mentioned that are commoditized, high volume, low price stuff. The preventative care is obviously the biggest part of it. Engage patients at that level, um, create a, a gamified way, you know, let tech enabled, relationship based, so patients can navigate in that system. And then when they need to get catastrophic type of care, you know, hospitalizations, you know, expensive imaging modalities, things like that, that's where their health insurance kicks in. I really think there is um, something there in terms of what you're trying to do. And it takes a, disru a disruptive force like what longitudinal is doing uh, and if you could create um, a business model that that can make sense and and create uh, consumer empowerment in that way I think that could be a tip the tipping point that we need in the consumer segment to really reach uh, the true um, uh, idealized state of what we're trying to accomplish in value-based care yeah I mean the more I think about this it's I've been having conversations with uh, providers around Austin to get pricing for some of these low dollar services and it's gonna take a lot of time. It's gonna take a trust that we are presenting this information in a way that is best for patients and isn't sort of antagonistic, I think is a, is a way to say it, because I think 
we're starting to see a lot of companies or individuals or not-for-profits aggressively go after providers, especially with the legislation, it's not even legislation, the rules, whatever it is that are out there under the Trump administration now, which are being fought by um, the provider and insurance community where they're supposed to publish their uh, the prices that they negotiate with insurance companies. Um, there's been so much pushback against that. And I think the provider community is skeptical of somebody like us coming in and saying, well, you know, give us your pricing. What's so interesting to me, and you talked a little bit about tipping points, is that some of the providers are actually saying it is not cost effective for them to give us cash pricing, which doesn't make logical sense. Because if I'm saying to you, if you t let us know what your cash prices are, someone's just going to come in and pay it. And that eliminates all the negotiation you have to do with an insurer. It, it's, it stops the mayhem of, you know this well, of <laughs> the administrative back office stuff. And some folks say, you know, at least a third of healthcare costs are associated with administration. So we eliminate that because it's a cash payment. I mean, this clearly should be where it's going. The providers, I, tell me a little bit more about the resistance to give a cash price because I think it's it's manifold. I think one is a fear that they don't really know what it is. Uh, two, I think, is an element that they're not used to it culturally. Like one of the things I've heard is that providers then have to train their office staff or the front office and the bill collectors to collect cash payments, which by the way is already happening because I have been in Austin and over the last year and a half, whenever I go to a provider, they give me a cash price and it is, it is a bunk price. I mean, the, the sort of, the way it's done now is they'll give me a price and then say, we're not gonna ask your insurance. I have like short-term catastrophic, so I know nothing's gonna get covered for the routine stuff. And they'll say, you know, we'll give you this price, but if you pay it right now, we'll give you 50% off which is a farce because I don't know what the base price is supposed to be, right? So there's an element of gaming that goes on with the um, providers and giving cash prices. So they're kind of doing it now anyway. But then I think that another element that maybe you can touch on is the fact that there's this sort of sliding fee scale for cash payments, because I think the philosophy has always been that everybody has insurance. So if someone's coming in to pay cash, they're low income. They either haven't qualified for Medicaid, haven't enrolled in Medicaid, and the, or whatever it is, is, they've got a high deductible health plan and they don't have enough money to pay. So there's this sort of sliding fee scale, which is not unlike a, a charge master price list where the highest price is the, the, what is on the self-pay list. And then the office negotiates with the patient based on their ability to pay. So, you know, there's just, it's just surprising to me that there isn't a cash price. But when I think about all of my experience in the industry and now when I'm talking to people, it, it, it's shockingly difficult to get one. Can you comment on that? 
You know, I, when, I, when I listen uh, to you, Janice, they speak on this topic, the one thing that comes to my mind, and I think you're absolutely correct, first and foremost, like I, I do agree that uh, providers don't know what to do in terms of uh, having a, a cash-based business model. They don't have the culture to support it. But I mean, I think what we have to take into account is like right now, there's a flashpoint for change and it's happening. So whereas you might not have a sliding fee scale and a, a cash-based business model that's uh, consumer oriented, you need to have it because, I mean, look at what's happening with, with COVID-19. I mean, uh, you're going to have potentially, you know, tens of millions dropping out of employer-sponsored health coverage by December. Um, there's going to be cost shifting that's going to be put on uh, employers to maintain a uh, level of benefits. I mean, I've heard, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know actuarially, you know, based, I mean, who, know, who knows what the renewals are going to look like for next year, but you could have employee employers that are going to have 20 to 40% premium increases. I think as you're looking at the under 65 market, like I, I, I think there's going to be a huge disruption in, in employer uh, sponsored coverage. So I, I could see how potentially there could even be uh, a looming collapse of the commercial marketplace where you haven't had employers really pushing uh, for uh, benefit redesign because, you know, they're just, you know, subsidizing the, the outrageous growth in, in healthcare expenses, but now it's unsustainable and it's been, uh, you know, really brought about through this flashpoint we've had with COVID. But with those dropping out of the workforce, I think there's going to be a need for um, access to healthcare that um, can be a attained through a, a kind of a cash-based model. I, I do think um, COVID is going to really open up a lot of opportunity there. And then in the employer market, I, I know that's not answering your question directly, but I think there's a lot of opportunity at a policy level to really think about, you know, like a Medicare Advantage for All type model, you know, really getting away from the provision of uh, employer-sponsored benefits. But I, but in, in through that evolution, if that does happen, regardless, I think uh, uh, there's going to be more of a, uh, a need for uh, pricing transparency and uh, consumer empowerment. And, uh, and uh, I think providers are going to have to figure out, um, you know, how to, how to share their prices, um, you know, create a model that um, where potentially you, I mean, having come out of the provider side, I, I know that, you know, like typically I wouldn't have more than 30, a third of my business uh, that's based on patient out of pocket, but I think that's going to increase over time uh, just based on the, um, some of the dis disruptions we currently have in place in the market. And I think uh, provider organizations are going to have to evolve and adapt uh, to meet the needs of the consumer during this time. Well, I love the fact that you said there could be a collapse of the <laughs> traditional insurance market. <laughs> I'd love to see that. Um, and I am hoping that this happens. You know, it is fascinating, you know, how this pandemic has transformed so many things like telemedicine, uh, you know, because it seemed like, why aren't people using telemedicine? And, you know, suddenly they have to do it. And I would love to see more, um, more engagement for these low dollar, uh, like I say, commoditized um, services. And I think that may be a better way to start engaging some of these providers to just um, culturally shift and understand that this is like, this is happening because it, I'm not the only one asking and, you know, providers need to engage. Like I, like I said, I don't want to be antagonistic. I want to be engaging so that we can get this information. And ultimately the, the market's going to settle out when one person posts a price, you know, there shouldn't be that much price variation between 
somebody doing a lab test and some other person doing a lab test, if they want to upcharge it because it's in their office and it's, you know, uh, they've got to pay to have it in their office, I may just pay that difference because it's convenient for me. Which leads me to my last question for you, which is about navigation. And one of the challenges of doing this sort of price transparency stuff is that, you know, the, the thing that I am expecting a lot of people are going to do is they're going to look at prices for things, say it's a CAT scan, and we'll designate, you know, based on the condition you have, what type of CAT scan you're going to need, um, or an MRI, uh, you know, we won't just say MRI, um, with contrast, without, you know, abdomen, whatever it is. But the challenge is they'll look for the one that's cheapest and say, I'm going to go do that one. But what we longitudinal has to do, which I think the ACO model already has in place, is say to somebody, you probably want to do your MRI in a place where your doctor can get the scans. You know, if you go off somewhere to like, you know, Houston or somewhere, you know, out of, uh, to Kyle, you know, outside of Austin to get it done because it's $20 cheaper, your doctor may not have access to that. And then you got to go get it. You got to bring it to the doctor. I mean, that, that's money. That takes time and it slows the doctor down. And there's, I think, a resistance and it's a legitimate one on the part of the providers to say, you know what, I have this lab set up in my office I know it's 10 bucks more, but you know, they are incurring the cost of having the lab there. It's going to be much better for you, the patient, because the lab work's going to immediately go to the doctor and it's going to be in your medical record. And I think this is an element of coordinated care that is going to be on longitudinal to ensure that our customers understand that you know, you, you get what you pay for in pricing sometimes, and some high price providers are going to be worth it, some aren't, and you know, the market may figure that out, but there is a, a simplicity cost and a coordinated care cost that is going to be worth it for people. And so can you tell me or react a little bit to the fact that one of the reasons I'm trying to get away from having navigators navigate the system for our patients is because they're expensive. And when somebody else is navigating the system, uh, then I'm winding up on a care path that everybody else would be on. And it's not unique to me. Whereas we at Longitudinal are trying to curate what people, the care experience that somebody should get based on who they are and what their likes are. Yet we're challenged to ensure that they do it in the most price effective way for them. What are your thoughts on that? Okay, there. I, I love this question, and you know the thing that really comes to mind for me, Janice, and you know we we've talked so much about um, you know the the putting the um, pricing um, uh, that's more favorable in 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 a patient centered way, um, reengineering the model. I, I think one th aspect that maybe isn't a part of Longitudinal's um, efforts to to create um, a new way of delivering care, but seemingly much needed, is really creating democratization of data. I mean, you should be able to go anywhere in the, in the, in the health system across the continuum and have uh, a, a democratization of data. You have to, I think patients really need to have continuous real-time data. And I think now as we're, um, 
incorporating a lot of different technological advancements in healthcare with regard to cloud and AI and mobile phones and much more. We need to think about that. I think there has to be, um, I think if longitudinal um, in conjunction with maybe some way in our industry to deliver a unified patient record where you don't have data blocking by EHR vendors and you completely open up the, the potentiality of the fire standard and blue button 2.0 and create data activation and liquidity um, that's really going to allow the market to, to run in, in, a, in, a, in a way that's, that's more patient centered and competitive. Uh, you're not going to have, um, you know, these, um, these types of uh, steerage mandates where you do have to go and then have, you know, your, your testing or, you know, imaging or whatever done by a certain, you know, in network or within a clinically integrated network that's going to uh, support uh, the transference of that information. I, I just think that there has to be something there to coincide with the revolution that you're leading in terms of creating the longitudinal um, healthcare plan that's part of your dream in terms of, uh, you know, really creating the consumer empowerment. I, you know, anyway, that's what comes to mind for me. Uh, I, I think you're, you're doing all the right things in terms of, you know, thinking about the financial alignment, consumer empowerment, really thinking about how to leverage uh, genetic testing and all of that. But then I think there's this whole other aspect of the industry that doesn't support itself. And, and it's the same thing I was referring to earlier, like we're trying to, you know, put ACOs uh, on top of a broken healthcare system. We got to fix the broken healthcare system. <laughs> Longitudinal has a great way to approach it and disrupt it, but we have to fix the broken, um, you know, information uh, flow that, that we currently have in place. It just doesn't support population health and value-based care. And that's my biggest concern as I think about, you know, some of the, the ideas that, 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 you're, that you're bringing about in terms of uh, care navigation. Uh, I just don't know how you can navigate a, a, a broke, how you can eliminate care navigation if the system's so broken. It's almost like we have to insert that role or that function, you know, just to, to figure it all out and, and create some kind of a, a favorable experience and outcome for the patient, which shouldn't be that way. But unfortunately, it is what it is at the moment. Yeah, that's very astute. So I will wrap this up by going back to my book, Healthcare Meet the American Dream, because Every time I sort of hit a stumbling block with bringing, uh, you know, this idea to market, I, I wind up going back to the book and I'm like, oh, you know, that's the answer. And in the book, there's a, a chapter on why this movement towards electronic medical records didn't fix the system for all the reasons that we talked about this disconnection. And at the end of the chapter, I made this comment that I think the solution is that everybody's EMR needs to be a microchip in their body. And because you are the single source of all the data, you're the one common denominator is you. Uh, and if we were to do something like that, then you'd pick up everything, you know, you'd pick up all of your healthcare encounters in one place, instead of trying to do it, you know, from the top down, you do it from the bottom up because you would just sort of scan yourself everywhere. I'm not quite sure that that idea is going to work with what we're doing yet, but I do think in, in my lifetime, that's going to happen. Um, and maybe that's what I do after longitudinal. But uh, I want to thank you so much for being on the show, Eric. Thanks, Janice. I enjoyed uh, spending time with you today. I look forward to staying in touch. And, you know, as this evolves, maybe we'll have you back on to give your advice because this was really, really insightful. And I think our listeners are going to get a lot out of it. 
Can you tell our folks how they can learn more about the ACLC and how they can reach you if need be? Sure. Uh, well, definitely. Uh, I'm easy to find. Uh, LinkedIn's probably, you know, a, a good way to reach out. Um, the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative uh, is a great way to, if you're in a provider organization or, you know, any other um, type of organization that's really trying to advance uh, the value agenda and deliver at better outcomes, we, we offer great opportunities to convene. We, we provide intelligence um, for the industry. So uh, definitely look us up, ACLC, and and uh, we um, are uh, are happy to uh, do our part to really, as a nonprofit organization, create the social impact to advance uh, health value for the country. So um, expect a, a lot of great developments in the coming months as we're looking to grow and uh, expand our efforts in terms of supporting the uh, workforce development needs and uh, uh, advancing the health value agenda. Awesome. You have some super brain power in that organization, and I can't wait to keep track and see what's going to come out of the group. Well, thank you, um, and thanks to the listeners. This is the Powers Report podcast. Please subscribe to our show, and please follow me, Janice Powers, on social media. Check out our website at powersreportpodcast.com to submit questions and ideas and even potential visitors you'd like to see on the show. I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks so much for listening.